Well, back in uh, 2007, I heard a review of a Brad Paisley record on public radio. And there was a a line the reviewer said in it that I uh, have never forgotten. Uh, I have no recollection at all uh, if she liked the Brad Paisley record or didn't like the Brad Paisley record. I can't remember. But at some point during her review, this is what she said. She said, country music is the soundtrack of adulthood. (laughs) Country music is the soundtrack of adulthood. She didn't explain that statement. She didn't defend that statement. She just said it like, of course, it's true. And I got to be honest with you, I have thought about that line a lot uh, in the last 13 years or so. And I'm not exactly sure, but I think that uh, what she was saying was that the broad themes of pain and pleasure and love and loss and longing that are present in modern country music are, you know, universal to human experience. Well, there is a song like that in the story that we just read together. You could call it a country song or maybe a folk song. Uh, And for one of the people in the story, it strikes a dark, dark chord of loss and longing that he nourishes into a poisonous envy. Saul has struck down his thousands, the women sang, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And what I want to say is that part of you and I living as followers of Jesus is learning how to recognize envy in our own lives and also learning how to cling to Jesus so that its harmful power over us can be weakened. So like I said, this story picks up right where the story we looked at last week left off, and it might be helpful to remember a few things. The first thing is that we know that Saul's days as the king are numbered. And he knows it. He's known that for several years now. It's not exactly clear how long, but he knows that his days as the king are numbered. But instead of letting this knowledge uh, temper him, instead of letting this knowledge humble him, he has let it corrode him into a violent and unpredictable, a suspicious and nervous man. Meanwhile, we as readers of the story know that David has been secretly chosen to be his successor. And David, for his part, would uh, come on occasion from his home in Bethlehem to play music in Saul's court to soothe Saul whenever he was particularly troubled. Well, Saul, over time, has grown to appreciate David's uh, uh, doing that for him, his service, but he's never really honestly paid attention to who David was. And then all at once, David's anonymity comes to an end after he kills Goliath. And Saul asks David, who are you? Whose son are you? David says, "I'm, I'm Jesse's son. And this checks out with Saul. And Saul decides in that moment that he's going to take David into his own house. He's going to be a member now of his own court. And when this happens, this is what we're told, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, that Jonathan loved David like he loved himself. So who's Jonathan? (laughs) Well, Jonathan is Saul's 
son. Jonathan is the crown prince, the rightful heir to the throne. Jonathan is a valiant warrior in his own right. So in the next week or two, we're going to talk more about the friendship that exists between Jonathan and David. But for now, what I want us to see is that what Jonathan does next is unexpected and it is remarkable. He takes off his robe and his armor. And the writer says he even took off his sword and his bow and his belt. And he gives them all to David. This is a deeply symbolic act. I mean, it's not as if they couldn't have gotten all that stuff for David out of the royal armory. But the point is not that David gets his own gear now. The point is that David gets Jonathan's gear. Jonathan is divesting himself of his claims as the crown prince. He is, even if it is just between he and David, he is giving up his right to the throne He is handing it all over to David. Now, maybe this goes without saying, but let me just make sure that I say it. This is not in the ancient world. This is not what princes did for people that they thought were their rivals. Princes crushed their rivals or anyone else who stood in the way of their ascendancy. But Jonathan gives up his rights for David. He opens his hands to David. It's upside down. And it's unexpected. So we'll come back to that. But Jonathan's open-handedness serves as a dramatic backdrop, really as a foil to what happens next. The storyteller says that David becomes this great military leader. He is successful wherever Saul sends him. And everybody loved it. Everybody loved it. But then this one little song changes everything. One day, King Saul and his best fighter, David, are heading back from battle, and the women come out of all of the cities in Israel, as was the custom, and they are singing and dancing to meet King Saul with songs of joy. Church, this is an incredibly important detail. They are coming out to meet Saul. These women are coming out to meet their king and to welcome him home with joy. They intend to honor him for what he has done in leading them and for picking the best of the best to fight with him. But he cannot see that and he cannot hear that. All he hears is that stupid song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. (laughs) When Saul hears this, And when he feels that certain kind of poison welling up and coursing through him, he has a choice. He has a choice. He does not have to be the one guy that hates David. He can accept all that God has given him up to that point in his life, and it's been pretty great. He could accept all that God's given him, and he could accept that God is going to use David from this point on into the future to do incredible things, or he can descend into the soul-destroying and fearful place of envy. And we know the tragedy of his choice. (laughs) He says to himself, what more can this kid have but the kingdom, my kingdom? 
And Saul eyed David from that day on. He got that bad eye that Jesus was talking about in the gospel lesson. He chooses envy. So do you know what envy is? Envy isn't necessarily wanting the good things that other people have. I mean, there's a name for that. That's a thing. It's called greed. But that's not what envy is. Envy is resenting what others have and wanting them to fall. Aristotle called envy pain at the good fortune of others. Kant called it seeing the well-being of others with distress. And this is why in the Divine Comedy, uh, Dante makes the punishment for envy to have your eyes sewn shut so that you can't ever look with joy on someone's downfall again. And scripture is pretty clear, both in the stories that it tells, like this one about Saul, and in the plain teaching that it gives that the end result of unchecked envy is anger, and it's fear, and it's deconstruction, and it is the loss of our own humanity. As the book of Proverbs says it, envy makes the bones rot. And so, of course, the church has for a very long time called envy one of the the seven deadly sins, the seven capital sins, the fountainheads of all human misery. And you know, the truth is it's not hard (laughs) for us to get our finger on it in our own lives. Think of the, the gossipy conversations we have about a friend or maybe a coworker who's done well and received an accolade of some kind. And our response is to find any flaws that they have and to magnify them and to talk about them because it feeds our envy. Think of the strange and almost unexplainable happiness that we feel sometimes when a public figure goes down or when a particularly public marriage falls apart, and we feel smug about it. Or think about that sibling or that friend that we wish would just get taken down a peg or two, and we tell ourselves, you know, it's, it's for their own good. You know, think of all of the emotional energy that goes into that stuff, all of the anger, all of the wasted time. I mean, it's ugly to hear these things. (laughs) It's ugly to say them. And that's because we were not made for them, church. (laughs) This is not what we were made for. We have been created for something so much more and so much better than that. But Saul, Saul lets himself sink. In fact, he tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him twice. And it's like a tragic comedy, really. It's not at all clear in the story that David even knows that Saul has this homicidal intention towards him. For David, it appears to be, well, it's just crazy old Saul throwing stuff. No problem. I can evade it. 
But then Saul tries to get rid of David passively, or at least get David out of his sight by making him commander of a thousand, giving him more military responsibility. But that backfires because David is so good at what he does. Israel and Judah love him. (laughs) And the result for Saul is more fear. Fear. And we'll see as we continue reading about David that Saul's envy really in the end deconstructs him into madness. (laughs) So what is the antidote to this poison? What is it that we as followers of Jesus have been made for? Well, this is where we come back to Jonathan. (laughs) He is the inverse of his father Saul. Jonathan sees the good that is happening in David's life. He sees the good that's happening around David's life, and he actually adds to it. He loves David. He gives him literally everything meaningful that he has. He doesn't cling more tightly to his power and hope that David falls. He loves David, and he wants David to succeed, even if it costs him. He adds to David's success. And in this way, Jonathan is a beautiful pointer to an even better prince that would come. I mean, there was someone who was God himself with all of the prerogatives and all of the rights of God himself, with all of the glories of the king. He could have remained in glory. It was his right to do so. But instead, he stripped off all that he had and he gave it to us for our good and for our happiness and our restoration and for our success. And Jonathan in this story, he's just lifting a finger. He is a shadow pointing to the substance of this beautiful good news of Jesus. And church, that is the good news that sets people like you and me, it sets us free from the power of envy. I mean, Jesus destroys envy at the cross. At the cross, Jesus delights in giving us uh, everything that we don't deserve. (laughs) We have been given all that matters the most in life. And, And when we believe that, and I don't mean believe it like we check it off, like I believe that. I mean believe it in the sense that we begin to live out the life that says that's true. Then the pernicious power of envy is weakened in us, and we become more and more free as people. We're free to put our own happiness and our own good into the good and happiness of others, just like Jesus did for us. We grow into the kind of people who don't want to see others fail. We want to see them grow. We want to see them succeed. We want to do everything that we can to help them, and then we want to celebrate when they succeed. That church, that is the life that we have been made for. And Jesus redeems us to live that life, and he grows that life in us as we cling to him by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we ask that you would do whatever it is that you need to do in us um, so that we would see this better prince that has come, (laughs) 
and believe fully and completely in, in the most thoroughgoing way that we can, that we would grow in our belief, that we would grow in our faith in him, the one who has stripped himself of everything that was his, to give it to us <laughs> so that we could be forgiven and made new. Father, help us to believe that this is true, that we have been given all that really matters in life so that envy would be weakened so that we would walk away from it, so that we would put it away. Father, do this so that we can mature and grow up in our faith and do this so that we can become a people slowly (laughs) through whom you can love this broken world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.